Hello, good morning and welcome to Cobden Centre Radio with me, your host, Andy Duncan. This morning I am privileged to be speaking to Professor Philip Bagus, who teaches Austrian School Methodology, Economics and the Economic Analysis of the European Union at the University Rey Juan Carlos in Madrid in Spain. His main academic interests are in monetary theory, capital theory and business cycle theory. And Professor Bagus is also the author of one of my favourite economics books of recent times, as published by the Mises Institute, which is The Tragedy of the Euro. Hola, Professor. Hola, buenos dias. There has been a great flowering of the Austrian economic school in Spain under the guidance of Professor Joeto de Soto. Can you tell us how you got involved in this sort of Spanish-Austrian renaissance? In 2001, I went the first time to Mises Uni- University in Auburn. And there were already several people who were recommending me because I asked them, what's the best place to study Austrian economics in Europe? And they said in Spain with Jesus Huerta de Soto, there was, for example, Gabriel Calzada, but also Guido Hülsmann recommended it to me. So one year later, I, I did a Spanish language course to prepare and then I went as an Erasmus student for one, one year to Madrid. It was a great experience for me. But then I had to return to Germany to finish my master or my diploma. And of course, I compared the isolation in Germany and the enthusiasm by of Walter de Soto, um, the inspiration that we that you get here because there are many Austrians. It's very stimulating. So, of course, I returned to do my PhD and I got a job at Rey Juan Carlos and that's why I'm here. Which part of Germany are you from? I'm from Westphalia, close to Münster and Osnabrück, so in the northwest. It's been very quiet on the Euro front recently in the news. We've all been watching the events unfold in the Middle East, in Egypt and Tunisia and Libya and so on. Can you fill us in on what's been going on in the background with the Euro while the rest of us have been watching the events unfold in Egypt and Libya? Indeed, the events of Af- Africa have, have pushed the subject to the background, but many things have, have happened this year. To update you, in, in general, we were already, again, close to big problems because there were important emissions of depths of peripheral countries like Italy, Spain, but most importantly Portugal. So the market was very excited what and how these emissions would go and the yields were going up to record highs actually. So guess what what happened? The ECB incre- increased its purchases of Portuguese bonds and so forth. So the emissions at last went well, and markets calmed again. To this contributed also the um, summit in Davos at the end of January, where Merkel and Sarkozy said that they would do anything to save the euro, something that makes me really laugh, that they will do anything to save this. It reminds me a little bit of the World War II rhetoric, like of total war. You will do anything to save or to win the war. This time the war is against evil speculators. I mean, it's really outrageous that they say something, that they will do anything. Will they do murder to save the euro? Or would they do double tax rates in Germany to bail out peripheral countries? So I think this statement is ridiculous, but it calmed, of course, market also. And now everyone is on a hold, everyone is waiting on the market for the EU summits in March, uh, March 11th and 
Boss 21st. And the expectation is that the bailout fund, the rescue fund, will be extended. The expectation is also that there, even though Germany asked for it last year, there will be no automatic penalties. So the expectation is that we go one step further to a transfer union. If that does not happen, we will get, get a, a new severe problems in the markets for sovereign debt. Another proposition that's, that Merkel proposed was the Pact for Competitiveness. In this Pact for Competitiveness, there's harmonization of tax rates in a corridor, harmonization of retirement age, debt breaks, wages uh, should not be inflation indexed, also harmonization in education and research. So some of the ideas are not bad. For example, the harmonization of retirement age, if it goes to higher age, of course, because it's like privatizing the public pensions through the back door. If we raise the retirement age to 120 years, then it's basically it's basically a privatization of the public system. Or also a good idea is uh, that in some countries uh, wages are indexed to inflation. So even though productivity does not rise, then wages have to have to rise because the ECB is printing <coughs> printing money. Spain is a case, so it would be good to be to get rid of that. Or a debt break. Uh, the debt break is a German, uh, Germany did it. I think in 2016. Germany has to have a balanced budget, basically. But but other pro- proposals are, and I think this debt break, uh, they will, America will never succeed in this. But of course, the others is the other horrible, like the harmonization of tax rates. But most important is that centralization of power. So there will be no competition anymore between different fiscal fiscal units. So no voting by feet. Taxes more or less the same everywhere one centrist state. And of course, the other question is what happens if Merkel is not there anymore. So once we have the harmonization, then the incentives or the expectation, my expectation is that then the harmonization will go in one direction, higher tax rates, and maybe they will lower the retirement age again, etc. So we will see what comes out of this. Do you think the German people are going to accept this? Do you think they're going to demand the return of the Deutschmark to get away from this political union, or are they just going to go along meekly with the rest of the EU to help the euro survive? It's hard to say for me because I was surprised in March 2010, honestly, because Merkel had said there will be no bailout, the German media was against it. So I thought they will never break uh, bailout Greece, especially because it's against uh, the treaty, it's against the law. But they did it anyway. Later, the media, extra media, actually supported it. So why would it not be possible to go to pull off a full transfer union with massive transfers year to year? If if the of Greece was possible against my expectation, maybe this transfer union will also be possible. I hope not. And Germans don't don't resist. They they are willing to bear the burden. The problem is that at the end, they lost the war. I think this is a huge problem because they were blamed for all the atrocities. Um, The education in Germany is in this way that only Germany were guilty for the war and they have to pay to make good for it. And this comes up in the rhetoric again and again in the introduction of when the euro was introduced. I write about it in my book. And now again, uh, Sarkozy and Merkel are saying that the euro is Europe and Europe is peace. 
So in other words, without the euro, there would be war in Europe. You refer to this a lot in your book about how they keep bringing up the Auschwitz thing all the time to try to provoke people into guilt. I always find it very strange that someone can feel guilty when they were born 30, 40 years after the Second World War. Um, It's a very successful trick they seem to have managed to bring off. Okay, I just wanted to ask you this. As someone who myself believes in free market money and who'd prefer to use either silver or gold in a kind of 100% reserve in the glorious civilised Austrian world of the future, I want to see the end of the euro now. What do you think the chances are of my dream of the euro being destroyed, being fulfilled over the next year or two or within the next few years? Well, this would be my dream also. It depends on, on two things, of course, on what the politicians will do. I think they will try to push forward the Euro project. As they said, said, they will do anything to make the Euro survive. There's also the population. There are the peripheral countries where the population might just say, we don't want this austerity, austerity, we don't want high tax rates and less public benefits. So there might be resistance in Greece or Ireland might uh, renegotiate try to renegotiate or default on the loans. Of course, the default would not necessarily be automatically the end of the euro because you could default and stay in the euro, but probably they would default and also leave this hated system. So there might be resistance on part of peripheral countries and there might be resistance in Germany that uh, the population is not willing to sustain the transfers anymore. And this uh, this could happen in the next two years. Well, in Germany, they will, besides this Auschwitz argument, there's also the argument, which I think is very stupid, that Germany would be benefiting from the weak euro. And with the Deutschmark, the Deutschmark would appreciate. So the weak euro is very good for Germany because it pushes export. So the argument in Germany is basically Germany profits via export plus the euro brings peace, plus Germans are the bad guys, so they have to comp- compensate for the war anyway. So will this, com- will this convince the German public? That's, a bit, that's probably the most important question, uh, the most important issue for answering your question. To the export thing, it's true that the weak currency pushes or incentives uh, is good for your export. But exports are not really that what you want. If you break it down to an individual citizen, when you sell a good or a service, when you work, you are exporting. And when you buy goods and services, you are importing. So what is the interesting thing? Is it to only import and not export? Or is it to only export as Germany does and not import? So actually, uh, the nicest thing would be, of course, not to work, not to sell your stuff and only get import. That is basically what peripheral countries do. So uh, I think it's absurd to say that Germany is profiting from this. But okay, it depends if firms will sustain, will go up, there will be inflation rates of 10%. And maybe at this point, they may say, now we want Belgium to demark the the Bundesbank. And at this moment, it might break up. There might arise a German Tea Party campaigning against the euro. We will see. I was astonished recently to read that the Irish government is printing its own euros, never mind borrowing them from Germans, and that Greek government junk bonds are being accepted as collateral by the ECB to keep the whole game going. Do you think this could be the weak underpinning of the euro, this acceptance of junk bonds and different governments printing their own euros? To the Irish case, they are not exactly printing their own euros. They are giving emergency loans to their banks that they don't have, they 
have um, other assets on their balance sheet of 50, 50 billion uh, of, of those uh, loans. So, which of course reduce the quality of the euro because the quality of the assets that the euro system holds is reduced. The same is true for holding weak bonds, not that the ECB accesses collateral or buys. Moving on from the euro, some people have said that Ben Bernanke's printing of trillions of dollars out of thin air has precipitated these food right revolutions in the Middle East. But the state never lets a good crisis go to waste, especially one that it causes itself. Do you think the world's central banks, like the ECB, the Federal Reserve and so on, are going to use the Middle East revolutions as a cover for why oil prices are rising so dramatically, rather than money printing? And will they then blame the forthcoming massive price inflation on nothing more than an out-of-the-blue oil crisis? Certainly, they will do. They always use these excuses. First, they print money, then prices rise, and then they say they say they are innocent because they blame the prices that are rising faster than others for, for their own rise and not for their printing of money. And of course, if they would not print money, then if oil prices go up and people spend more on oil, they have less money to spend on other goods. So if oil prices go up, other prices would have to go down. But we don't see that. We see oil prices basically rising. Ones are rising faster, in this case, oil because of this revolution in the Arabic countries, and also because oil is a very liquid asset and therefore people invest in it to save the purchasing power. So oil, oil prices are rising, so it's clearly a monetary cause behind it. Of course, they try to make to blame oil for it and then come up here. Yeah. Now we put fire on the house. First we put fire on the house by printing money, and now we are in charge and we will solve the problem and take care of the price inflation. So we're adding insult to injury by this. Last year, the IMF released a research paper to tackle all of these problems which are arising from the monetary system. And this paper suggested that the, the solution would be a new global currency. Just before Davos this year, it released a second paper, and this paper suggested that the IMF are going to produce massive quantitative easing of this SDR, its own special drawing rights currency. Do you think that they're going to be successful in this plan to, first of all, do massive quantitative easing of the SDR to introduce a secondary kind of global currency, and then to turn this into a global currency called something like the Bancor. Do you think the world elites are going to be able to get this new global fiat currency in to solve our financial problems? I hope, of course, not. There are important questions about redistribution if you try to farm like this, because how will we spread the benefits of the money production to the individual government? How do we put, would we put limits to the monetization of deficits? It will be probably basically the same problem that we have now in the European Union, that we have the one central banking system producing benefits from money production. How do we spread that? How would we, how do, would we spread this with a bank or, or yeah, another world currency? So I see the very big problem, so, and I don't see it coming soon. So uh, the crisis would have to be huge to really to do, to do the step in this direction. I, I think they're capable of producing a giant crisis. Do you think that we're going to see a free monetary system in our lifetimes? How old are you? Uh, I can't reveal that over the radio because uh, that would be too embarrassing, <laughs> but I was born sometime in the 1960s, is as much as I'm going to reveal. <laughs> Well, um, let's do our best to achieve that. I, it depends, I guess, on, on the struggle of ideas which we are involved in. 
so it depends on our on a little bit on ourselves. I hope so. I hope so. I will do my best in any case. One thing I've always been very pleased by with uh, Murray Rothbard was always his eternal optimism. He was always very pessimistic in the extreme short term, but always extremely optimistic in the long term. And you're scheduled to deliver the Murray Rothbard Memorial Lecture at the Ludwig von Mises Institute later this month. How does it feel to be invited to deliver a lecture like that? And can you fill us in a little bit on what your lecture is going to be about? It's probably the greatest honour that I received uh, in my career so far. I always... Maya Rothbard, it's the author that I read most when I discovered the Austrian School. The Ethics of Liberty is one of my favorite books, as many of his other books. And so I feel really honored by this. And I will talk something related to my Eurobook. I will talk about negative externalities in the monetary system and how I will first make a, do, try to reconstruct a negative externality analysis and show how the mainstream definition of it is too broad and how the Austrian definition of negative externalities or external cost is much better because it's based on property rights. And then I will apply it to the to money and show that there are three layers in our monetary system. There are negative externalities in base money production uh, in the um, fraction reserve banking system where there is actually a tragedy of the commons and also in the euro system. And then I will propose reforms to get rid of the, all these negative externalities. Going from our current situation to the Austrian solution in the future, how do you think we can go from what we have now as a world monetary system to a free monetary system? First, we would have to win the battle of ideas. And like Mises and Rothbard always emphasize that. So when a, when a crisis comes, the paper money system collapses, we have to be there to explain yeah, the causes and give the remedies and propose alternatives, promote co- competition. And if the population supports this, the new money will be yeah, better than the one we have now. Very positive is the internet, of course, for, for us, for spreading the ideas. And in some sense, we are already moving towards a freer monetary system because people start to buy precious metals already. And when people have already precious metals, it's much easier to switch toward a free monetary system. And of course, there are many ways. Walter Soto has this in his book, several steps to get to 100% gold standard. There, there might be other ways that are, that are fast, which, which I, I would prefer faster. Fast, faster way, but, but okay. His, his way is, his way is in, in the right direction. You've just written a new book with Professor David Howard on Iceland's financial situation. Can you tell us why you moved in that direction, why you wrote about Iceland? What do you think is important about Iceland that we need to know more about it? Well, Iceland is a special case because its collapse has just been monumental. And it's basically a case of a whole country going bankrupt. For some days, it was even questionable if there would be enough money around to pay for imports because there were not really much real goods to export besides some fish. The debts were 11 times of GDP of uh, the financial system. Uh, so it was a really huge leverage, much more accentuated than in anywhere on the world. And there was no way to save it. So we explained the book, how was this possible? And we explained it was basically maturity mismatching that banks borrowed short at low interest rates to to lend uh, into for long-term investment projects. And at the same time, 
there was currency mismatching. <clears throat> and both were promoted by the credit expansion, the Federal Reserve Banking System, government guarantees for the banking system, the central bank. So the currency mismatching consists in borrowing, for example, in yen or in euro, and then lending in Icelandic krona and benefiting from the difference in interest rate. And this currency mismatching was promoted by an implicit bailout guarantee of the IMF. Some bankers actually wrote that they thought they were, at the end, they would be bailed out by someone. The combination of those both, maturity mismatching and currency mismatching, is we show it's really explosive. Because it's like you receive a short-term loan in euros or in yen to finance a long-term investment in Iceland, in Krona. So this caused massive malinvestment on Iceland and bubbles. And when, then when the interest rates went up and uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed and international wholesale markets dried up, I Icelandic banks could not renew their short-term loans and went bankrupt and it all came down. Of course, there was an, a huge liquidity problem and Icelandic banking system had debts in foreign currency. So in this case, the central bank could not save their own banks because the Icelandic central bank can only print krona, but it cannot print um, yen or euros. So there was no way to, to save this. So we, we tell the story about this, try to make it interesting. So I hope you, you will like the book also as much as you like the tragedy of the euro. I'm about halfway through it, and when I've finished it, I will speak to Professor David Howden about it. Do you think there are going to be any more Icelands in the next few years? Are any other countries going to do what Iceland did? No, uh, such an extreme case. I don't see coming into the speciality of Iceland was this currency mismatching. Of course, the maturity mismatching is very similar to credit expansion and fueled by credit expansion is something that um, everyone is basically, the whole, whole world is doing. So smaller instances, smaller crises we will see, but maybe we will never see again such a, such a case as Iceland. But again, it's just in a stronger dimension we, what we have seen in other countries and that we, well, with what we will see. In my ideal world, there'll be some crisis somewhere and then the euro will collapse. Where do you see a crisis happening in Europe? Will it be Greece? Will it be Portugal? Will it be Belgium? Will it be France? Will it be Spain? Where's the fire going to start, do you think? It's hard to, hard to say. They will probably bail out Portugal um, soon. In March, at least that is the expectation of markets. I mean, they have already been bailing out, or the ECB has been bailing out Portugal for some time by buying their bonds. And then there will be probably a restructuring of some debts by in Ireland, Greece, or, or Portugal. And it's possible that at this time there will be, again, renewed attacks on on, on Spain. So, and when Spain goes down, then it might be that uh, Italy and Belgium get attacked. Then there might be not enough uh, money around to save them. And I mean, they are always saving the problems of, of this debt, debt problems with more debts. They are not really paying down any debts. They're still deficits. So the problem is actually still rising. So when Italy and Belgium are a problem, then France will not be safe anymore either. And I think before that, Germans might already have been revolting against that. Is there anything else do you think we need to know before you go? I thank you very much for the interview and thank you for the great work you are doing at the Copton Centre. And then I invite you all to listen to my on, on Thursday to my Rostock Memorial Lecture. OK, thank you very much, Professor Bagus, and it was great to speak to you. I thank you. Thank you very much.